time with God every day. Every day. Every day. I will spend time with God. I will pray. I will pray. 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 I will pray. I will be holy. I will be holy. 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 I will be. I will be holy. I will fulfill God's purpose for me and my generation. My generation. My generation. I will fulfill God's purpose. God's purpose for my generation. For me and my generation. My generation. I will live the vow. Uh, hi, I'm Ronnie Austin. Ah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you all. Some of you I don't know very well. Some of you I know really, really well. So briefly, I just want to uh, give you my testimony. And basically, this is it. I'm from Arkansas. Woo pig. I know my shirt is fuchsia or a maroon color. It's not pink, and it's not a fruit color. Don't call this plum or raspberry, all right? It's not, okay? It's fuchsia. I may be wearing a fuchsia, fuchsia shirt, but I am definitely a hillbilly. Ask anyone that grew up or any, yeah, just ask these guys over here. They know, all right? They know, they know. Um, being that I grew up hillbilly and grew up in Arkansas, that's right in the middle of the Bible Belt, I was around a lot of church culture. I was around a lot of church people. Uh, but I myself was not church. My mother didn't go to church. My dad didn't go to church. My grandparents went to church and occasionally took me, but church wasn't part of our family tradition, and neither was marriage. My parents were divorced at two, so, uh, and my dad uh, ended up getting a girlfriend that he stayed with forever. They're still together. Uh, she is like a stepmother to me, but they're not married. So a lot of normal Bible Belt functioning family values just really weren't instilled in me, even though I'm from that area. Does that make sense? So when I got to be about 16 or 17, short version is, you know, the three big ones, sex, drugs, alcohol, all that stuff. My life was tied up in it. Bunch of drunken debauchery going on in my world. I went to college. That was a very tough year, uh, or actually a semester and a half because I failed out. And I uh, went back home. And I ran into one of my old party buddies who didn't party anymore. And I was like, what the heck is going on? He's like, dude, I met Jesus. You need to come meet him with me. And I was like, no way. I'm never going to church. I hate the church. I was embittered toward the church. But he finally duped me into going. And on my first adventure to his little church in Arkansas, I met a man named Bella Eid. Bella Eid was a missionary to Nigeria. And when he spoke, he, talk about, he talked about things with power. Like, it wasn't just words. He talked about power. He talked about Jesus healing the sick. Jesus making the blind see. Jesus multiplying food. Jesus manipulating the weather or controlling the weather. Being sovereign over the weather. Not that Jesus is manipulative, but uh, he is definitely sovereign. Uh, and when I heard this guy talk about a Jesus that was God and had power, it shook me. It shook my core. And I was like, that guy's God? I want some of that. Because in, in, in church culture, when you grow up in the Arkansas area, uh, church comes, becomes kind of like a, uh, uh, a social club, like a social event. You show up on Sunday, everything, hi, how are you? How good? How are you? Are you coming over for the potluck this afternoon? Why, yes, I am. That's good. And everyone's good. I'm good. You stay out of my business. I'll stay out of yours. It's kind of a social cultural norm more than it is a lifestyle more than it is a lifestyle. Religion is actually religious. It's not, uh, I don't know, it's just not all-consuming. It's not your life. It's just something that is a part of your life. Does that make sense? And so I got around Bella Eid and uh, got around this church, met a bunch of people that really, really loved each other. The only problem is um, 
I myself was holding on to a lot of compromise. You know, I wanted this God of power, but I still wanted my old friends. I wanted this uh, living water, but I also wanted some beers, you know? So that was just, that was just how it was. Uh, and um, I went to this conference in 03 called Desperation, Desperation Conference in uh, 2003. And I saw young people that really love the Lord. I was like, holy cow, these guys are doing it. I want to be like them. Like the thing Bella E talked about, the Jesus of power, these guys are living it. I want some, you know, to jump in around. It was great. I loved it, you know. And so I got, I got fired up, right? Right? I went home. And a couple months later, wasn't so fired up. Still hanging out with old friends. Still doing the old things. Still had the same play places and play things that I did from my past. And my spiritual walk became a roller coaster. I would have these big highs and then these big lows. And every year I went to Desperation Conference. And I was like, man, I just want to be different. I want to be different. And every year I'd come back home and uh, tolerate compromise. And the compromise I tolerated would snatch away the seeds that the Lord had planted in my heart. Does that make sense? So that was, that was my story. And uh, in 06, a very fiery funky-haired young man from the furnace came to my church to be the youth pastor. His name was Tyrell Conez, and Tyrell Conez uh, emboldened me. We have a word, encourage. You know what encourage means? To inspire courage. Uh, But in our world, encourage is like, say things to make you feel better. So I don't use encourage. I use emboldened. Make the cowardly bold, to impart boldness, emboldment, okay? So uh, Tyrell emboldened me. Basically, he put a fire under my hind parts and got me to move to Colorado to join this little program called The Furnace, and that was in 06. So I moved out here to do The Furnace, to be a part of Desperation Internships in 06. But guess what followed me? My compromise. Spilt water everywhere. I wish that I didn't have the handheld. Hang on. I'm a very thirsty person. I apologize about that. I tolerated compromise still when I came out to the furnace. I'll tell you this right now. Just because you moved to Colorado to join a program does not mean that you are holy. Get that thought out of your mind. Because your junk that you left back home followed you out here. It did. It follows everyone out here. It's inevitable. You will still have to deal with your junk. Just because you left the girlfriend, just because you left the party house, just because you left the drugs, just because you left whatever it is that you left, the anger, the malice, the the moaning, the complaining, just because you left it doesn't mean it didn't follow you out here. And that was a story of my life, and I tolerated some compromise. I went through two years of the furnace, one year, one and a half years of volunteering, and still tolerated the little things. The little things, I didn't want to give up. And that compromise turned into a landslide. Sin crept back into my life, and before I knew it, I was facing disaster. Disaster. Compromise almost destroyed me. And I'll tell you right now, until we are broken to the point of surrender, arrested by the truth, dead to ourselves, we will never find the wholeness we were destined for be ransomed into the freedom purchased, 
and find the life he intends for us. Tonight, I want to challenge you to go to war with compromise. I had to go to war with compromise. And it wasn't until I came to this point of surrender that I finally found freedom in my life. So let's pray. Jesus, I just give tonight to you. Lord, I give my words, my thoughts. Lord, I ask tonight that I would be clear that what you want to say would come across. And Jesus, I pray that we would be receptive, that we would not take offense, but God, we would have soft hearts. We would soften our hearts before the Lord and allow you room to help us grow, to help us mature, to help us increase in our knowledge of you. Jesus, tonight is about you and nothing else. Amen. Okay, here we go. Now it's sermon time. So y'all know a little bit about me. I don't know if y'all know me or not. Like everybody's like, who is this guy? Why is he? I thought he was an administrator. Like I thought he was a junior high pastor. What's going on? No, no, no. I'm an intern. Intern at heart. I was an intern in 06 and I still have a lot of that inside of me. I mean, I've been in your seat. I know what it's like to sit there. Okay. I'm telling you, I drink a lot of water. Okay, here we go. Um, I'm an Old Testament junkie. How many of y'all like the Old Testament? Yeah, I love the Old Testament. I can get down on some Deuteronomy. No kidding. That's one of my favorite books. Numbers is probably my second favorite, and this story is out of Numbers. Uh, how many of y'all know who Moses is? So you, you. Okay, so Moses leaves Egypt, right? And he's uh, tromping through the desert with a bunch of compromising knuckleheads. And uh, here are some of the things that happened during his adventure. He grinds up a golden calf that was an idol that his brother, the high priest, made. Uh, he beats a rock for water, not once, twice. Uh, he gets manna from heaven with a side of complaining topped off with bottomless quail. Uh, ground opens up, eats people. A bronze serpent is on a pole healing the sick. I mean, there's a lot of crazy things that are happening on this adventure while Moses is going through the desert. And one reason he was wondering so much is because he kept running into other kings' territories, okay? So this is where the story picks up. Um, this is uh, the first king is King Edom. This is Numbers 20. Numbers 20, 14 through 20. Uh, need, Y'all need some time to get there? I got like 12 pages of notes, so I'm trying to just get on it. Oh, it's up? Okay, perfect. Uh, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. So Moses is going through the desert, and he comes up to a king's territory, and he's like, we better get permission before we pass, okay? So this is what happens. Um, he sends missioner, uh, missionaries, messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship we have met. How our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice, sent an angel, brought us out of Egypt, and here we are in Kadesh, on a city on the edge of your territory. Let us pass through your land, for we will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from the well, and we'll go along to the king's highway, and we will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left hand until we've passed through your territory. So basically Moses is saying, hey, dude, look, it's been real hard for us, and we've left Egypt, and we need to pass. Will you let us pass? We promise not to mess up your stuff. So um, king says, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. So the king of Edom did not like the idea of this huge, massive people group trompsing through his land. That would, that would mess up his jive. So uh, he refused to give passage. 
And um, the people of Israel said, we will go up by the highway, and if we drink your water, I and my livestock, either one of us, will pay for it. Now, I want you to grasp something here. Israel is not poor. Just because they're homeless doesn't mean they're poor. When they left Egypt, the Egyptians were so excited to see these guys go that they were giving them gold, giving them all their possessions. They were loading them down with carts full of goods because they wanted them gone so bad. They plundered Egypt. That is scripture. They plundered Egypt. And they're carrying all these goods with them through the desert. So they had the means to pay for anything they needed. They had the means to pay for anything they needed. Um, I'll pick up the story here. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. So basically this king said, "Uh uh-uh, and brought on an army. And Moses says, fine, we'll go around. So the wondering continues, right? Okay, Numbers 21. Numbers 21, verse 1. This is King Arid. When the Canaanite, the king of Arid, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Therim, oh my goodness, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Basically, this is what happened with King Arid. Uh, He saw that wealth that they were carrying, and he said, "Uh, I got to get that. And he ambushed Israel, took some of them captive, and this is what happened. Israel vowed a vow to, this is in verse 2. Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give us these people into my hand, I will devote their cities to destruction. The Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So this time when Israel runs into a king, this king attacks them, and Moses says, That's it. I've had enough. You're not taking my people captive. We're going to fight back. Moses fights back in the desert, and he kills this king, wipes him out. And then they're along their merry way again. Okay? Just tromping through the desert. All right. Next king. Numbers 21, 21. This is King Shion. Then Israel sent messengers to Shion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside. You know the drill. Same thing that he already said. This is verse 23. But Sion would not allow Israel to pass through the territory. He gathered all of his people together and went against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. So same scenario. Another king wants to fight Israel. Guess what happens? A thrashing. This is what happens in 24. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land. So not only did Moses kill these guys this time, he took possession of their stuff. See what's happening? Enemy kings are becoming more aggressive, and Moses is just becoming more uh, preemptive. Does that make sense? He's getting more and more, uh, uh-uh, not my house. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on with Moses. Uh, next king. This is King Og. So um, let's skip down to 31, verse 31. Israel lived in the Amorites because they took it over. And Moses sent a spy out to Jazir, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned, verse 33, and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, what a bad name, came out against them, he and all of his people, to the battle of Edri, I'm guessing. But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons, all his people, until he had no survivor left. And they took possession 
of his land. So long story short, two chapters later, four kings later, Moses and the Israelites are kicking some tail. They're not only tromping through the desert rich, they're whipping everybody that stands in their way. And they're possessing more and more. You see the favor of the Lord that's on them as they're going through the desert? Incredible favor. They were redeemed. Incredible favor. But here's the problem. As they keep taking over kings, they take possession of that land and they start to settle down a little bit. They start to settle down a little bit more. They start to, oh, look at that house. I really like that house. I know we're going to the promised land, but let's just stay at these houses for a little bit. It's a lot better than tent, right? Right? I mean, I know God gave us man from heaven and quail up to our eyeballs so much that we were sick of it. I mean, oh, look at this. Let's just, let's just hang out a little bit. Let's spend some time here. Does that make sense? Spending time in the enemy camp. Now, I know that they took possession of it. It was delivered into their hand. They had the right to. Here's a problem. Some compromise was creeping in on their redemption. Their redemption story was being tainted by compromise. Okay? So this is what happens. Next king on the list, King Moab. King, I'm sorry, King Balak of Moab. Okay? This is the fifth king they run into. This is Numbers 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. Beyond the Jordan at Jericho. You know where they're at? They're really, really, really close to the promised land. They're super close to the promised land. Here they are in the desert of Moab. And Balak, the son of Zippor, Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was so overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Moab was overcome. I'm sorry. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that's around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So basically, King Balak goes, uh, Holy moly, this is bad. These Israelites are killing everyone, and I'm next on the list. You see his thought process? So this is what he does. So Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. He sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pether, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call to him, saying, Behold, a people has come out against out of Egypt. Excuse me. They cover the face of the earth. They are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse these people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he who you curse is cursed. So basically, uh, King Balak, holy moly, this is bad. This is a bad moment. Israel's about to wipe me out. I need to do something, and I don't need to repeat the mistakes of other kings before me and just go out to war with them, because they will kick my tail. So what I'm going to do is I need some help. I can't handle these guys. I want to hire Balaam the fancy prophet of the day. Now, Balaam is like that guy that has the, the TV show, the afternoon talk show. He's got the magazine named after himself, Balaam, with his face on it every week. He's got his own book club. He's got a cult-like following. This is Balaam, okay? They call him the Big B. Y'all tracking with me now? All right, so Balaam is the big prophet, fancy prophet of the day. The king turns to him for, him for his salvation. But it takes a lot of convincing. The king 
has to give Balaam tons and tons of money. So now Balaam is super rich. Uh, Balaam decides he will go, and so he saddles up his donkey, and he's on his way to go curse Israel, right? His donkey stops right in the middle of the path and won't go. He's like, what's wrong with you, donkey? Let's go. He gets off the donkey, starts just beating this donkey, you know. Go! Go, donkey! What's wrong with you? You know, beating this donkey. So the donkey starts to go, and then the donkey pins him against a wall. So he gets three times, he beats the snot out of his donkey. And finally, Numbers 22, verse uh, 28, this is what happens. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Time out. He's rich. He's got a magazine and a talk show and lots of money. Now he has a talking donkey. So the donkey talks and says, what have I ever done to you? I've done nothing but serve you. Knock it off. What is wrong with you? The donkey's crying. (laughs) What have I done? And Balaam said to the donkey, time out. Balaam has a conversation with the donkey. All right, verse 29. Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had my sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Yeah? Talk back to me, donkey. I want to kill you. I kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, again, conversation with the donkey. This is incredible. Uh, I, am I not your donkey? I want you to have ridden your whole life long to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says, well, no, I guess not. He's reasoning with the donkey. Oh, no, I guess not. I mean, this is kind of peculiar. I don't know. I mean, I'm just really frustrated. And I mean, I just, you know, it kind of hurt my feelings. And I don't get it. I mean, if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. Or I can go get my sword. I mean, whatever. And about that time, poof, angel of the Lord appears. Turns out there's an angel in the way. And the angel says, Balaam, what's wrong with you? Why are you beating your donkey? You want to kill him? Hey, I, I do have a sword. I kill you. And Balaam's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. He's like, yeah, you're right. You did have no idea. Now listen to me. I'm going to let you go, but you say only what I tell you to say. Balaam says, okay. So He's off to find Balak. Okay? So uh, he goes. He catches up with Balak. And Balak's like, bro, what took so long? Did you not think I was going to pay you? And Balaam's like, oh, if you only knew. There's a donkey and this angel, and we were talking. And Balak's like, whatever. I need you to curse the Israelites. So this is what they do. Balaam says, okay, okay, king, I want you to build an altar, kill seven bulls, seven rams, have a little sacrifice time. I'm going to go off in the hills and see what the Lord says, and I'll come back and we'll chat. Seven. How expensive is that? Mandy knows. Mandy... How much is a bull? Market value of a bull right now? 3000 That's like a million dollars in bulls and rams. That's a lot of money, right? So they're just hacking up these bulls and rams. And Balaam comes back and he's like, uh, King, I got some bad news. I just talked to the Lord and... I can't curse him. He says, you curse them right now. I gave you all that money. I just killed all these bulls. You curse them right now. So Balaam goes to curse him, 
and a blessing comes out. And Balak's like, are you kidding me? And Balaam's like, bro, I'm sorry. Let's try again. Let's go over here so that we only see a portion of the Israelites. We'll do it again. Same procedure. Seven bulls, seven rams, build an altar. I mean, this is an all-day thing. It's ridiculous. It probably took a week long. All these bulls. I feel sorry for the guy who had to cut them up. He's like, oh, again? My arm is so sore. The bulls kick. They're like mad and stuff. This is horrible. Three times. Three times the king slaughters some bulls and rams. He goes to have a curse party, and a blessing comes out. Three times. Three times. And finally, the king's like, Balaam, I'm going to kill you, sucker. You better leave right now. And basically, Balaam says, hey, look, I told you. I call him like I see him. I just, I just said what God said. And then after that, he prophesies over them that they're going to wipe everybody out and that one day the whole world would be blessed through them. You need to read Numbers 20 if you want the rest of that story. I don't got time to go through it. But he basically prophesies over them. And then he shakes hands with the king and walks away. I have a problem with the ending to that story. That makes no sense whatsoever. How is it that this king is so mad? He's about to kill Balaam. Balaam's like, look, I told you I can do what I only had to do. And the king's like, okay, all right, well, I'll see you later. I don't think it ended that way. And I'll tell you why. Let's go to Revelation. Revelation 2, Revelation 2, 13. Let's just skip down to 14. Revelation 2, 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So what happened in that conversation is Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel. What is that stumbling block? So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. First thought. This book is out of the book of Revelation. And this is a, a specific letter written to one of the churches. And basically, it's a prophetic... What, what's, what's Revelation about? Well, what's Revelation about? Anybody? End times, right? There's a lot of eschatology in Revelation, right? These letters were, uh, were relevant to the churches at the time, but they're also relevant to who? Us, right? Us. So I want you to remember that. Number two... Revelation says that Balaam taught Balak. So this is how I think that conversation ended. King's about to kill Balaam. He's super mad. And Balaam says, time out. Look, I told you, I can't curse them because the Lord has blessed them. But I have an idea. I have an idea. If you can't beat them, join them. Literally, not figuratively, literally get in bed with the enemy. Send over your hottest Moabite hoochimamas, and seduce the people of Israel. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Read Numbers 25.1. Very next verse. Very next verse after Balaam's prophecy. Numbers 25 verse 1. When Israel lived in that place, the desert, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Who was Balak the king of? Moab. Does that make sense? I'll catch it. I need to say that again. Balak is the king of Moab. He sent over his women to seduce the people of Israel so he didn't have to fight them. He got them trapped in compromise. So now the people of Israel 
sleeping with the enemy, practicing sexual immorality, eating food sacrificed to idols, and they're messing with Baal worship. A minute ago, they were killing kings. A minute ago, they were taking possession of the land. Now, they're stuck in this desert place. I'm sorry, I just can't pronounce that word. <laughs> it's like, you can't expect me to do that. Who taught them to do this? Who taught them to do this? Whose idea was this? It was Balaam. Balaam's idea. Balaam's the one that came up with it. Balaam taught Balak to do it. Balaam is the one behind it. And according to Revelation, there's some that will tolerate the teaching of Balaam in the end times. You realize that Balaam is a spirit. It's more than just a Bible story. It's something that's affecting the church today. Okay? Verse 2. Numbers 25. These invited the people to uh, their sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. I want you to absorb that for a second. Baal worship, right? Not just involved, yoked. Yoked. In union with. Bound up in. Yoked. Like two oxen pulling the same cart. Yoked with a bale of payor. Balaam convinced the king to send over these women. And his religion. And his sin his people, so he could get Israel to fall and to compromise. That's where they had both hands. I propose to you today that the same thing is happening to the church in this generation. And another prophet besides John saw it coming. His name was Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 3. Second Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. It will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought, brought, bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with fa false, false words. Hmm. So Peter is telling us that the end times will be false teachers. What are they going to teach? Number one, destructive heresies. Pay attention. Listen to the gospel preaching to, being preached today. Y'all hear any destructive heresies? Do you? Do you look around? Do you see any? I'll tell you one right now. Uh, God guarantees wealth. We call this a prosperity gospel. Uh, there is no guarantee in the Bible that you will be super rich and drive a Mercedes. Matter of fact, more often than not, when Jesus talks about money, it's giving everything you have to the poor and following them. Uh, here's the point. Whether rich or poor, God doesn't care. He wants you to be generous. So if you're rich, be generous. If you're poor, be generous. He doesn't care. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you to be super rich. He wants your worship. So he wants us to worship with our money. Does that make sense? So uh, that, that's, that's, that's one, I think, heresy of this age. And if you look at the church, it comes across in the way we act. About 5 to 10% of the church ties. Because whenever your religion is about how wealthy you are, 
it conflicts with the religious, with the spiritual things of, of giving, having a generous heart. Does that make sense? Like, man, if my religion is about giving everything to God, we tithe happily. But if our religion is about us being wealthy, if our salvation is about us being wealthy, then when it comes time to tithe, this is the thought process that happens. God wants me to be wealthy, and if I give 10%, I won't be able to get that thing that I need or want. And because God wants me wealthy, I don't have to tithe. Does that make sense? That's the thought process that happens. It comes across in the church. Look at statistics. Okay, number two, uh, God guarantees easy street. I call this a comfort gospel. Um, if anything, Jesus says, you're going to have to pick up your cross to follow me. You have to die to yourself daily. And when the gospel comes about our comfort or our needs being fulfilled or us, everything being okay, uh, whenever things do get tough, we blame God, we get mad at God, and we bail out. We bail out. And you see that happening in the church today because Jesus wants to be comfortable. And that's not necessarily guaranteed. Another heresy, destructive heresy, that God guarantees you pleasure. I call this the feelings gospel. God wants you to be happy and your feelings to be great. Uh, again, God wants your worship, and sometimes he disciplines his children. And sometimes, you know what, we live in a fallen world and bad things happen, and you don't feel good, but you choose to worship. You choose to worship. And whenever gospel comes about feelings, you have problems like pornography, problems like divorce, and problems like addictions. And if you look at the church, it happens. Whenever I'm not comfortable with my marriage, it's okay for, for me to bail out. When I'm not comfortable with abstaining from sex, I can just go have it. When I'm not comfortable from dealing with addictions, that's okay. God wants me to be comfortable in my worships, in my wine, and in my drugs, and, you know, I find Jesus through pot. You know, I've heard these arguments, and it's stupid. It's a heresy. It's a destructive heresy. Uh, another thing they'll do, they'll deny the master. They'll deny the master who Jesus is. How many people say Jesus is a good teacher? Jesus is a good man. He was a prophet. But they won't necessarily confess that he is God. And I'm telling you right now, anything short of confessing the deity of Jesus Christ is a heresy. Heresy. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Will be blasphemed. What does the world think about Christians? Right now, how many people hate the church? Hate Chris? I was embittered myself towards the church, and it's because of these destructive heresies. The gospel you sold me isn't coming through. You lied to me. Now I'm mad at the church. Does that make sense? Only reason I mention these things is just to bring to your attention that they are happening today. What Peter saw coming is happening. Let's uh, two Peter. Chapter 2, we're still in that same little chapter here. Let's skip down to verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. These Balaams aren't outsiders. They're in the church. They're in the church. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. That means it can't be satisfied. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of who? Balaam. Spirit of Balaam operating prophetically. Or not, okay. Prophetically speaking, the spirit of Balaam will be operating. That's what Peter is saying. And I'm telling you, it's happening in the church today if we just look around. The simple examples I just gave you. 
Summed up, this is what Balaam teaches. Compromise. For his own personal gain. That's how the spirit of Balaam operates. I'll say it again. Compromise for your own personal gain. So there are some teachers that want personal gain, like wealth, and they'll teach certain things so that they can gain that. Or they want power. Does that make sense? Now, also, the spirit of Balaam can operate like this. It can operate, it can lie to you directly. Like, I want this certain thing. I need this certain thing. So I'm going to manipulate and bend the gospel, compromise on the gospel, so that I can have my wants, needs, and desires fulfilled. Does that make sense? That's what the spirit of Balaam is. That's how it operates. And uh, in this story and in these prophecies, I hope, I hope that that's clear. Um, the stumbling block of Balaam is you can have Jesus and. Jesus and. The heresy of this age is that you can have Jesus and your wealth. Jesus and your pleasure. Jesus and your comfort. Jesus and your compromise. Compromise is what Jesus warned the early church about, and we should heed that warning. This is what happened in Moab. Back to Numbers, Numbers 25. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So God is mad. You understand why? Just redeemed his people, sent them through the desert, gave them all this favor, and they return it, that favor, by compromise. Uh, hang them in the sun. What does it say up here on this version? Hang them in the sun? Yeah. You know what that means? Impale. You know what that is? Anybody confused on impaling? Impale. That's pretty violent. This is a little bit different than a stoning. Because if, if there's a stoning, you clean up afterwards and bury people. Impaling is putting on a pole, okay? Is everybody okay with that? I know that's gross, but that's just the truth. And the reason it says hanging out in the sun is because that's in the light. And that's something you leave up for a couple days. Verse 5, And Moses said to the judges of Israel, uh, Each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. There's also a plague that verse 8 mentions. We'll, we'll get to in a second. So basically, this is what's happening. God tells Moses, Moses, I'm sick of the compromise. Impale the men that are tied up in this compromise. And there's a plague breaking through the country. You see what's happening? Judgment and consequence. Baal worship involves some pretty gross things. It, the Baal of Peor specifically. That's why a plague broke out. It was consequences of actions. But judgment was still there as well, impale the people. So Moses basically goes around to get the leaders to start hanging out in the sun all the sin, right? So basically what you have is, is Bill, he's an Israelite, and he comes out of his tent in the morning. He's like, oh, I'm going to go get the paper. Whoa. Ah. Good morning, Bob. How are you? And Bob's like, oh, I'm doing all right. How are you, Bill? And Bill's like, oh, I'm pretty good. Just getting the paper. Oh, my gosh. Why is Steve on a pole? And Bob goes, well, he yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, so actually, I don't think Bob knew. Bob's like, I have no idea, but Moses just impaled him. And Bill's like, dang! Ah! Oh, has Mark seen this? And Bob goes, no, Mark died of a plague. Bill's like, oh, bro, this is rough times. I thought we were doing good. Bob's like, yeah, something's up. Something's up. The reason impaling is, is important and significant is because the sin 
is exposed. The sinner, the sin here is exposed. It's out in the sun. It's in the light. It's very obvious that something bad is happening. Does that make sense? We'll continue the story here. Um, Verse 6, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Mennonite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Okay, this is why I think no one knew why people were being impaled. Does that make sense? Either this guy is a complete idiot, or he's completely rebellious, or he's completely ignorant. He has to be one of the three. Because if Bill's out here, he's like, oh, dude's impaled. He's not going to go run off and get a Moabite prostitute if he knows that that is what happens whenever you go get one. So he's either really, really dumb, really, really rebellious, or ignorant. He doesn't know that that's why Steve was impaled. Does that make sense? So anyways, this idiot goes and he gets himself a Moabite prostitute, brings him to his tent in front of Jesus and everybody. Moses, good Lord's there, whole congregation, whole assembly, and and they're like, what? Pick up the story. The end of verse 6 says, while they were weeping uh, in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Uh, The people were in repentance. The people were still having their worship service, and they felt really, really bad, but there still was a plague and there still was impaling. That's also very important, that you you let that sink in. I'll say it again. They were in the temple repenting. They were very, 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 very sad that impaling and plague was breaking out, but it didn't stop the judgment or the consequences of actions that were happening. When other kings threatened them, they devoted them to destruction, right? But whenever this king threatened them, what did they do? They tolerated the compromise. And this is my question. Where are the priests? Where are the priests? Those entrusted with leading the people of Israel into worship of Yahweh, where are they while all this is going on? Who's sounding the alarm? Who's saying, wait a minute. What are you doing worshiping Baal? Where are they at? How can this happen? My proposition to you is they did nothing. The priests did nothing. And it was their responsibility. The priests of the land stood back and watched while the Israelite people got so tangled up in Baal worship. God's chosen race got tangled up in compromise that they compromised everything away to the point of God pouring out His judgment, and they did nothing. Not one person in the land stood up in the gap for their generation. Why? Because no one was teaching and fighting for the truth. The example is this knucklehead that goes finds a Moabite prostitute. He wasn't being taught the truth. He had no idea. He had no idea what his rebellion would cost him. Or he had no idea that his sexual immorality was wrong. He had no idea. Do you see what I'm saying? Where are the priests? Moses knows why there's a plague. God told him. And he knows why that people are being impaled. God told him. But this man does not. I think it's because leadership dropped the ball. Or this man was a complete idiot or rebel. And either way, either way, either way, whether it be Moses' fault or this man's fault or his fault or her fault, forget about fault. Bottom line is compromise was being tolerated. And somewhere down the chain of command, it was missed. 
Does that make sense? Compromise is a plague of this generation. The church is so whitewashed with an attempt to be relevant, it's become irrelevant. The gospel's been watered down to be just a means to an end. Jesus is not a means to an end. He's not our prosperity or comfort. He's not a means to feel better about our circumstance. And the Christian walk is not about us. There is no place in the church for compromise. Now, Jesus does want good things for us. He has good plans for us. He has a good plan for us. He does. But the gospel costs something. It cost him his life. And it cost us our life. I want you to hear me. I don't want you to get the whole like, my life should be horrible, I should be miserable, I should never be happy thinking in your head. That's not true. That's not true. God has plans for you. They are for good. They are to prosper you. But the prosperity itself, the wealth itself, the comfort itself is not our God. It's not what we're pursuing. We're pursuing Jesus. And come hell or high water or blessing or whatever, we don't care because he's worthy. Does that make sense? So forget about circumstance and look to Jesus. And the church has lost that. Now, I want you to hear something else. I'm not at all proposing that our compromise is a compromise on these convictions and truths because you've paid hundreds and thousands of dollars to be here. If you didn't have some sort of conviction on these, you wouldn't be here. What I'm saying is our compromise is a compromise of toleration. It's not taking the situation seriously. And my thesis tonight is that we are the priests that are sitting back and watching our generation compromise itself away to destruction. We're the priests obligated to take a stand. We're the watchmen responsible to sound the warning. We're the soldiers commissioned to go to war. And I observe our tribe lacking. Now, I know a lot of you have gone to a lot of trouble to get here. You've moved away from home. So did I. You paid a lot of money. So did I. You should have seen me. I had, like, everything I owned packed up in the back of my truck and wrapped with a tarp. I looked like the Clampets. I had a fishing pole on the top. I'm not kidding. I know. I know. I, I relate with you. I know that you've done a lot to get here. But for what? Are you finding an escape? Just trying to get away from your home? Did you come here to find your future? Are you here in the furnace because you think it'll get you a job? Think it'll help you be that worship pastor that you want to be? Maybe help you find a spouse? I see so many people that are more concerned about finding their spouse than they are finding the will of God for their life. I'm sick of it. Forget first semester, take two years. I took two years. I didn't date during the entirety of the furnace, and I spent another year not dating. And when I did date, I messed it up. You don't need to date till your heart's ready. Forget about the first semester rule. Dumbest thing ever sometimes. Throw that out the window. You know what you need to figure out? You need to figure out what God has for your life, what he's called you to. Because if you don't know that thing, and you find a girl or a, a man or whatever, and he's called to something entirely different, you'll wreck each other's stuff up, you know? Like, you know, she's called to live in a mud hut in Africa, and you're called to live in a, a seal hut in Alaska. I mean, this is kind of rough. It just doesn't work out. You want to have three kids? She wants to have 15. If you don't have that figured out, I mean, you're going to walk into a disaster. Does that make sense? Did you come here for David? 
or desperation, the name? Did you come here for the worship? Really? Worship is lame at my church. I'm going to go out there where I can jump around and stuff. Man, we got tambourines and flags. It's weird. You know, I don't know what's going on. I just want to go jump around and wear my button-up shirt and be cool during worship. That's I'm going to move to Colorado, have cool worship. A lot of people come out here for that. I hear it a lot uh, in the prayer meeting. I don't like the way this prayer leader leads. He's too mean. And he talks a lot. He preaches all the time. And he has these really big ears. I mean, I just can't stand this prayer leader. I don't like that worship leader. He sings funny. He's, he's off key. The chapel's too cold. I freeze to death in there. I got to wear a parka when I go pray. My accountability group smells funny. They're weird. I think this one guy was homeschooled. I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. And I don't like to be in front of people. I don't like to be in front of people. And it's weird. I don't, I don't like it. I'm kind of bashful. I don't like to be on the microphone. It makes me uncomfortable. Tough! Too bad! You lost that privilege when you signed your name over to the gospel. Your personal, personal preference and your comfort got signed away when you said, Jesus, take my life because you're worthy, because you purchased me with a price. It's not about you anymore. We have corporate prayer meetings. Otherwise, we would call them many individual God time gatherings. That is not what they are. They are corporate prayer meetings. Toleration happens when our environment comes, becomes about us. It becomes about us. And not about advancing the gospel. Just like the priests were consecrated for the purposes of God, the church and our tribe, we're part of a holy nation, a priesthood set apart for him who is worthy of our lives. And we are here specifically to advance the kingdom. That's what our whole world revolves around. It's what every Christian's world should revolve around. The consumer mentality is compromised, and I think our furnace is a way on it. Just a way on it. People come and go, sign up, quit, all in the same, just on a whim. And I'm okay with people coming in for the said reasons. Like, if you want to find a wife, and you want good worship, and you need accountability, I love those reasons. Hear me. I came for those reasons. But if we get stuck on that, and we don't grow up and get to where we put those reasons aside and lock eyes with Jesus... We're going to miss it. We have to mature beyond ourselves and get the bigger picture. We need to lay down our wants and desires to find His. It's necessary for us to set aside every distraction so we can take on the divine nature. I'll prove it to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through a knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. You all know this, right? He's given us everything we need. Let's keep reading, though. By which He has granted us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may become what? Read it. Partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the what? Corruption or compromise that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What are we saved by? We're saved by grace through what? Through faith. What do we add to that faith? Right here it says it. Virtue. You know what virtue is? It's practicing the disciplines. So we get saved, we start to learn virtues like prayer, like worship, like fasting. We start to learn these things. We learn in the disciplines. Virtue leads to what? Knowledge. Knowledge of who? 
knowledge of Jesus. That's why we do the disciplines. It's not for the disciplines in themselves. Like if you're going to the prayer room just to fill your hour, you're missing it. If you're going to the prayer room to get to know God better, you're taking that next step. Make sense? Let's keep reading. Uh, Knowledge with self-control. What happens when you get to know Jesus? What happens? Your flesh dies, your spirit gets stronger, and you learn self-control. The roller coaster of, oh, I'm on fire, now I'm not, oh, I'm on fire, now I'm not, oh, I'm on fire, now I'm not. It goes away. It goes away. Self-control with what? Steadfastness, standing firm. Now you start to have some vision, some traction, some stability. God is a constant in your life, not something you do on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. The steadfastness turns into what? Godliness. The process of godliness is in itself a process, as I just lined out for you. And godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Do you notice that love, operating in love, is one of the last things that happens on our Christian walk? Because I think it's the hardest thing to learn. Hardest thing to learn. And as long as it's about us and our selfish needs, we'll never get to the point where we're able to have brotherly affection. We're able to love like Jesus loves. We're able to have a heart for this generation. Does that make sense? So don't expect some of these changes to happen overnight. Let's keep going. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being what? Ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what this means? You can come to know Jesus and be unfruitful and ineffective because of your selfishness, because of your compromise, because of you not willing to take the steps, you will become unfruitful and unaffected. That is my fear. And that's the cycle I walked in for years. And it wasn't until I dealt with compromise that I became effective. Skip down to verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It's time to grow up. It's time to take a stand against compromise. It's time to take a stand against tolerating compromise and to live for Jesus, not for ourselves. In the desert of Moab, someone did this. Someone stood up for his generation and went to war with compromise. His name is Phinehas. Numbers 25, verse 7. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose up. You know what he saw? He saw that knucklehead take that hooker into his tent. You know what he did? He rose up. He went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through their, her belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died of the plague were 24,000. He picked up the weapons he had been given and went to war with compromise. And he changed the fate of his generation. Do you realize the, the repentance, the weeping, didn't change the fate? Action did. Action. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest, has turned back my wrath from the people, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. Where do you think he learned the Lord's jealousy from? Where do you think he learned it? You see, Phinehas took on the divine nature, just like Second Peter promised. He spent time with Jesus. He grew up in the temple. His granddad was the high priest Aaron. He learned about being high priest from Aaron, spent his time in the temple, and he spent his time learning his trade. And you know what happened? He fell in love with Jesus when he was learning those things. He fell in love with Jesus. And what was God's response to Phineas's action? Verse 11. 
so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. God was going to wipe out Israel. He is patient. His mercies are new every morning, but he will tolerate compromise only for so long before judgment is necessary to stir his people to action. In place of judgment, we are asking for revival. This is what Psalms 106, 28. You might want to write that down. I've got to hurry up. We're running out of time. Psalms 106, verse 28. They yoke themselves to the Baal of Peor. They ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds, and the plague broke out among them. But Phineas stood up and intervened. The plague was checked. To him, it was credited to him, it, it was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. Wait a second, Ronnie. I thought it was our... What? That's counted as righteousness. What? What's it say in Hebrews? Faith. Faith. We see what happened with Phineas. Phineas did have faith. He had faith and he knew Jesus. He had faith in God. And he knew that this wasn't tolerated in his God's house. Why should he tolerate it in his own house? That caused action. Faith caused action. And his action changed the fate of a generation. Okay? You tracking with me there? The church of Jesus Christ is at war. Did y'all know that? And the battle line is drawn right down the middle of our hearts. Right down the middle. That is where the war is fought. Matthew eleven twelve says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. No one's in Phineas' day, <laughs> no one in Phineas's day had a clue the danger they were in because of compromise. But he picked up his weapons and fought. Now, what should we do? We need to pick up our weapons and fight. What are our weapons? Do pray tell. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul can say these things. I don't know if we can. Is our war really fought in the spirit or is it fought in the flesh? Really, ask yourself that. Do you war in the flesh or do you war in the spirit? I had to ask myself that. The weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Do I really use the weapons of the flesh or do I really use the weapons that have the divine power? Like when I'm in trouble, where do I run? Do I run to Balaam? If I am struggling and I can't pay my furnace tuition, where do I run? Do I run to Jesus in prayer first? Whenever I'm struggling with whatever it may be, do I pop a rubber band on my wrist? Or do I wage war in the Spirit? Praying in the Spirit. That's what Ephesians 6 says. Let's read Ephesians 6. 17, or 18, excuse me. This is like, you know, helmet of salvation, shield of faith, all that stuff. And he says, pick up the sword. What's the sword? Uh, go to 16. What the heck? In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Next, 17. Take the helmet of a salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? So we're to run around with our Bibles, beating things, right? No, keep reading. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me. What word stands out there? Pray. Pray. This is not a weapon 
if it's not in here. It is a book. This is a weapon when it transcends just being a book and penetrates our hearts. And the weapon is prayer. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't want to get into that. Okay. That's why we have prayer meetings. That's why we have corporate prayer meetings. That's why we pray together, so that we're in agreement. That's where we wage our warfare. Does that make sense? Okay, we're coming around. We're coming around. Here we go. Acts 12, you know the story. Peter's in prison, right? He's about to be executed by Herod. Verse 6, he's bound in chains. He's got 16 soldiers around him. Verse 7, he's struck by an angel of the Lord, told to get up, and his chains fall off his hands. By the time Peter realizes what's going on, verse 12, he's just whipping it down the Jerusalem streets back to the church. Why? Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I'll put it to you this way, friends. You think Jesus is busted out of jail if the church isn't praying for him earnestly? You think an angel is dispatched to have Peter's chains fall off his wrist if the church isn't in prayer earnestly? I think in our day, we would be like, where's the Christian judge? Seriously, can we get some flyers, some pamphlets or something? Peter's in prison. We need to have a protest. Does that make sense? This is hard to swallow, friends, but we'll, we'll, we'll put a constitutional amendment on the ballot before we'll go pray. In Colorado, you can do that as a citizen. You can petition to put an amendment on the ballot. But sometimes I look at programs of the church in America, we will go straight to politics before we'll go pray to Jesus. What's it going to take for us to pray earnestly like the church prayed? Our pastors going to jail? Secret police kicking in the doors to our basements where we have our secret church meetings? What will it take for us to get earnest about prayer and take it very seriously? When it's the only thing we have left. When it's the only thing we have. The reason the church was praying earnestly for Peter is because they didn't have anything else. Everything else would have failed them. I mean, the church was being killed. They, that's all they had was Jesus. They were completely dependent on God's power. And so as Peter's in jail, they do the dumbest thing ever. Get on their knees and cry out to an invisible God. The world's wisdom says foolish. Heavenly wisdom says you got it. That's where the power is. Now, to my point, I am not accusing you of taking your salvation flippantly. I want you to hear this. I'm not accusing you of taking your salvation flippantly. What I'm suggesting is that we don't just settle for filling out a blue card. Hear me. Don't settle for just filling out a blue card. I'm challenging us, myself as well, to look beyond ourselves and to look to generations. I'm asking God for more and for us to press for more and not to stop where we're at. It's very easy to get into a rhythm and it's very easy to get comfortable. Listen to me. And I see too many missed opportunities. Too many of my friends go to jail because they don't have drug money and they were caught stealing stuff. Too many of my friends go on mission trips and confess that they love the Lord with everything they are and then a couple years later cheat on their wife and not even man enough to file for a divorce. Just let it happen. Too many of my friends that say they know Jesus year later, hooked on drugs again. Too many leaders in the church get caught up in sin, get exposed and get kicked out. I'm sick of it. I've seen too much of it. I've seen too many of my friends say they love the Lord and there not be a real heart change. There not be something different on the inside. 
God has called us to be holy as he is holy, his bride to be spotless, and for us to see him move in power. I will not settle for anything short of revival in this generation. And our responsibility to that end is to take up the spear of prayer, see the foundations of a meeting place being shaked, See the blind see again. See the deaf hear. See the dead raised and see the sick healed. Overcome the gates of hell and usher in the kingdom of God. And anything short of that, we can ask for more. This is what I want you all to take away. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. I don't think you all are all caught up in a bunch of sin. What I'm saying is, is the church is compromising. The church is compromising on its beliefs and some of its values. And our role here is to go to war with that, to not sit back and tolerate it. So when we come together for prayer meetings and things like that, there's a reason. It's not just for our comfort. It's not just for our commitments. It's not just for our blue card. It's for the advancement of the kingdom. Does that make sense? And I see a lot of us make it about me, 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 my, 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 me, my, my. And I'm challenging you to grow past that. Stop being an infant. Get, up, get some solid food. Get to know Jesus. Some, make that process that's lined out in Second Peter to where you're filled up with love so much that you're crying for a people group, that you're crying out for a gen- literally crying that you're broken. I want to be there, friends. I want to be there. So the question is, what should we do? Uh, here's the first thing. It's a real shocker. Uh, follow Jesus. Focus on him. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. That's your number one practical. Number two, be honest. If you're lying in your accountability group because you're afraid of what might happen because your sin's exposed, toss that garbage out the window, impale your heart, get all that stuff out because there's freedom. He's faithful to forgive if we confess our sins and heal us. That's Hebrews. Uh, Number three, own a prayer meeting. Own a prayer meeting. That's what this looks like. Here's an idea. For that first hour, instead of getting your God time in then, Get it in earlier in the day. Spend the rest of the day fasting. Show up to the prayer meeting about 10 or 20 minutes early. Just start using your prayer language or, 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 or worshiping or praying for that night. And then when the prayer leader gets there, go up to the prayer leader and say, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here to serve. Then take that first hour, pray for the second hour. Pray for people that are in the room. Ask God to download into you what his will for the night is. You start leading that prayer meeting from the back of the room. Worship in that whole first hour. Not catching up on your reading or journaling. Those things are fine. Those things are fine. You don't have to do this every prayer meeting. I'm just saying, give it a shot. Own a prayer meeting. Just one. One out of the however many you go to. Some of you go to two. Some of you go to like all seven of them. Six. However many there are. I don't even know anymore. Next thing you can do, look for a scripture to pray that night. Something, if you can't find a scripture, just thumb through the Psalms. If you can't find a Psalm, just open the Bible and point. Like, oh no, that's awful. Just open again, point. Like, okay, I got one, great. Here's another one. Be up front and present whenever worship starts. Lean worship. Second hour starts, it's time for worship. You know when that is. Like it just went from Phil on the keys to like a full band, right? Yeah, so get up front and worship. And then during that second hour, go up to the leader and say, hey, I feel like God put this on my heart. You do what you want with it, but I'm here to serve you whatever you need. 
leader says, okay, go pray it, or okay, hang on to it. I'll, I'll pull you in a little bit later. You can pray it then. Does that make sense? Own a prayer meeting. Make it yours. You lead it. Take that leadership away from the leader. Be like, I'm leading this prayer meeting. Not literally. Not literally. Figuratively. Okay, here's another thing. Uh, this is going to be hard. Tactfully call things out. Like if you see a brother sinning, be like, what are you doing? You're sinning, you sucker. You're all, what are you doing? Don't do that. You're a jerk. You know, don't do that. <clears throat> Instead, you see someone that may be struggling or hurting or, or maybe they're grumpy or angry. Just be like, hey, man, how's your heart? What's going on? How you doing? What's in your heart? Can I pray for you? Tactfully call things out. You see how that's calling something out? Carter, hey man, I've just been praying for you. How you doing? How's your heart? How is it? Good? I feel like the Lord told me you need a haircut. Okay? Just kidding, just kidding. And lastly, ask God to give you a passion for something. Ask God to give you a passion for something. I'm telling you, if you do some of these things, your commitments here at the furnace and your salvation won't be about you anymore. It'll be more about Jesus, and you'll make that step from infant Christianity to mature Christianity. Now, I have two audiences tonight. One audience is the person that is compromising. If you are compromising a bunch of sin and tolerating a bunch of garbage in your heart, get it out. Get it out. I hope this offended you. Because compromise in Israel's day and the teaching of Balaam, that spirit of Balaam, was a bad deal for the people of Israel, okay? Deal with it. Deal with it before judgment comes. Cry out for his mercy. Cry out for revival. Get honest. Get that junk out of your heart. My second audience is those that are sitting back and making their commitments about themselves. I'm challenging you to grow up a little bit. Look past yourself, your comfort, and really think about what God is doing in your heart here in this place. Be committed. Be sold in. And with that in mind, I say this. One of the best ways you can mess up your time here and your walk here is compromise on break. Bow doesn't take a break. Bow is a lifestyle. Christianity, the Christian walk, is a lifestyle. It's not something you do during a season. Don't take a break on the bow. That's compromise. It will kill you. Now, there are some of you that are not compromising, and you don't tolerate that garbage. And you stand up, and you fight. I mean, you're in the prayer meeting. You're connected. You pray hard, you're on your knees, you're crying out. You know what I'm talking about. I want you to be encouraged and know that you don't stand alone. We should all be doing that. Hey, man, you're the leader. If you're that person, that's like, man, I want a heart for this generation. Yeah, I'm saying, yeah, you're doing the right thing. And your action may be the thing that changes what happens over the next 10 years in America. I'm not kidding. Calvinist, Arminian, I don't care. Look, bottom line is, whenever... God, whenever we pray and we take action, God does stuff, all right? And his heart for this generation is salvation. You've just heard one of the speakers from Desperation, a ministry of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. For more information on becoming a Desperation intern, attending one of our conferences, or joining the Desperation National Network for local churches, visit us at desperationonline.com.